Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. And without further ado... I will now introduce two of our authors tonight. Uh, Tad Nodine is a novelist and writer who grew up in Florida and now lives in California. Uh, he is a graduate of Oberlin College and UC Santa Cruz, who's made a living as a legislative correspondent, speechwriter, journalist, publishing director, writing instructor, university lecturer, grant writer, and education policy specialist, to name a few. Uh, <laughs> Publishers Weekly describe Nodine's new novel, Touch and Go, as cinematic and deserves to be hailed as one of the year's finest fiction debuts. Uh, while Jonathan Franzen described the book as a high-velocity vision quest that keeps surprising and surprising, Touch and Go is his first novel. Uh, also appearing tonight, a special guest, An Andrea Portis. Uh, <laughs> Uh, grew up in rural Nebraska, later shuffling between Illinois, Texas, North Dakota, as well as North Carolina before attending uh, Bryn Mawr College. She received her MFA from UC San Diego and became a script reader for uh, Paramount Pictures. Uh, she now resides in Los Angeles and is a nightlife columnist for several websites. Uh, her first novel, Hick, has just been adapted into a film starring uh, Chloe Grave uh, Moritz, uh, Blake Lively, Alec Baldwin, Juliet Lewis, and Eddie Redmayne. Uh, the film debuted at the Toronto International Film Festival this September. Uh, both will be reading from their novels. Please join me in welcoming Tad Nodine and Andrea Portis. Uh, thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure being here. I'm really excited. It's my fourth reading, and I'm trying to figure out the microphone so I can get a little higher. There are a few seats left. Uh, maybe, could you guys move over a little bit? And then there's three seats over here. There's one there. If anybody wants to come down to the front and sit down. I think so. I think it'll work. Yeah, that's better. Thank you, Dan. And uh, I want to thank Mary Williams. Is Mary here? Maybe she's not, but she's the one that originally invited me here. I'm really honored to be here at Skylight Books. I was telling some of my friends that I'd be down here, and I'd heard it was one of the cool uh, bookstores in L.A., and they said, it's the coolest bookstore in L.A. So I'm really excited to be here. Uh, today I had the pleasure of being in Peter's class uh, at Venice High School, and so let's do a shout-out for all the Venice High School students here tonight. Nothing like extra credit. <laughs> so, um, 
really excited to be here. I'm also very excited and honored to be reading with um, Andrea Portes, who has a book out and a film that has just come out. So I'm really excited to hear about that. Uh, one of the neat things about both of our novels is they're both road trip books. So they have stories of people going on a journey. Uh, my book is a, so what we're going to do I think tonight is read, each of us will read a piece and then we'll answer questions together. Does that sound good? And so if you have any questions, um, we'll be glad to kind of take them at the very end. Um, Touch and Go is a story of a foster family. Goes on a road trip from California to Florida to deliver a handmade casket to a dying grandfather. They leave from Bur he, they starts out in Burbank, um, in Glendale, and so it, it's very close to home. I knew I know about Glendale and Burbank from Peter because I've stayed here before. I wanted it to start out. I think you'll find out later that Andrea's story comes into LA, uh, or it's a, a story of someone leaving to come here. Uh, my story is one that starts here and goes into the deep south, kind of rather into something new, it goes back into the old, back into memory, back into the past, and the secrets come up along the way. So journeys take us out of our comfort zones, they take us out of what we're used to, especially uh, for this family, five strong characters, uh, Patrick and Isa. Patrick and Isa are the two uh, parents, foster parents. Uh, they're both white. They're in recovery. Uh, this book kind of undermines a little bit the concepts of recovery. In a sense, all of us are in recovery from one thing or another. Devon's a 16-year-old uh, who goes along the trip. You'll hear about him today. Uh, Ray is a 12-year-old who goes along on the trip as well. Devon, the 16-year-old, his voice has just dropped. Kevin is a blind man who goes along on the road. This story is told through the eyes of someone who's blind. No visual perception at all. Uh, he lost his uh, sight in an accident at age five. So this book also deals with issues about physical disability, uh, disability, what are the things that uh, make us unique, and how are they related to our physical being and also to our spiritual and other beings. Um, so journeys take us through change. We get them in a car. I'm going to read today from the beginning of chapter three, which is the start. Uh, Kevin, remember, is the narrator. He's the one that tells the story. Betsy is the name of the car they go in. And I got to get a little water. Oh, this is fun. I have friends from college, from all over, here tonight and people I've never met before. The next morning, I stood in the doorway in my new shoes and sandals, chilled by the dawn air and irritated at myself. Our bags were already packed in Betsy's hold, and the casket, I forgot to say, I think I did say earlier, they have a casket that's on the top of their car. They're taken. And the casket was lying atop the old wagon at a tilt, gift-wrapped inside a big tarp with plenty of duct tape. Half an hour earlier, the boys and I had helped Patrick cover the bulky box as it lay on the driveway. I didn't like the idea of transporting the thing, but I did my part, holding a corner of the tarp against the side of the box and feeling the contours of the relief carvings. Suddenly, Patrick tugged the tarp out of my hands and pushed it aside, the stiff material crinkling, a sound I always found satisfying, like popping a sheet of, sheet of bubble wrap underfoot. But the abrupt noise spooked me today. He clicked open the lid and whispered for us not to tell Isa. Devon laughed and said, I forgot about the lights. 
I couldn't help reaching inside where my hands found a string of small pin lights growing warm, tucked into the crease of soft fabric around the base of the casket. I pulled my hands away. Geez, I thought, lights in a casket. In a casket for an old man not yet gone. I'm not one for empty decorum, but there are limits that shouldn't be pushed. Never mind the lights, Patrick said brusquely. He brought to my hand a large canvas sack. Within it, I realized as Patrick pulled it open and I reached inside were several Ziploc plastic bags. And inside those bags, he opened one. We all passed around a small prickly bone about the length of my fingers. He's selling bones again, I thought, shaking my head, and this time from a coffin. Coon bone, he said, though he wouldn't tell Devin when Devin asked what a coon bone was or what was in the other bags. I pretended I didn't care. But Devin took the bait, asking him who would lay down for some janky bones. Gamblers, Patrick said, his voice tinged with enthusiasm. Where are we going to see gamblers? Devin said, you'd be surprised. What do they want them for? Luck. Devin pressed him, but that was all Patrick would say. Gamblers, I thought, trying to take it in stride. We used half the roll of a duct tape to make the tarp cling to the casket. Next, we hoisted it over Betsy's roof, careful not to bump anything. There was only one crossbar in the roof rack. There was only one crossbar in the roof rack, the back one, so the coffin tilted forward. Patrick lashed the casket to the crossbar and sent a second rope in through the back doors and around the top. He rolled towels around the two ropes to protect the wood. He tried to show Devin how to try a tucker's, try how to tie a trucker's hitch on the back rope and a carrick bend on the front, but Devin wasn't interested. It made me think of Dad, who tried to teach my brother Larry how to tie knots, but it never bothered with me. That's a good tilt, Patrick said. More aerodynamic. Looks like we look like hillbillies, Devin said. As we waited for Isa, I stood in the doorway, stewing about Patrick's stupid plans, lugging a casket cross country with impertinent lights in sight and bones. Geez, the bones. But I was also annoyed at myself for having been ensnared by this trip. And for breaking my cell phone the day before, now I'd have to travel without it. Deep down, I must have known why I was going, yet still I clung to my delusion about writing some articles about the family. I even made a vow. As Isa rushed, rustled in the kitchen behind me and Patrick shuffled around Betsy before me, I resolved to keep my distance from them both. I would be a reporter, a witness. I'd have to comfort Isa and suffer pa Patrick from time to time, but I would not get pulled into their vortex. It's startling to me now how good I was at self-deception. Devin's flip-flops slapped the driveway as he approached. Lighten up, he said, jiggling my arm. Why are you always playing the worried white boss? I shook my head and couldn't help but smile. You're the one worried about how Betsy looks, I said. That's more like it, he said, slapping his flip-flops down the driveway. You gotta let things go. Betsy's motor rumbled. Caught and revved. Get in! Patrick yelled. Nobody got in, so far as I could tell. The pitter-patter of feet came up the driveway, and Ray leaned against my side, sleepy. So I put my arm around him, trying to feel better about going. It was about the kids, I told myself. I'd hang out with the kids. What's the racket? Mr. Grenadier yelled from next door. Turn off the damn motor! I saw! Patrick yelled. You're waking the neighbors! 
Let's go, Isa declared, pushing Ray and me out the front doorway. We hurried into the back seat. Ray first, then me, then Devin. As Isa locked the house and jumped into the front, filling the car with her woody perfume, Patrick gunned the motor, throwing my head back and spinning Betsy's tires. Isa shrieked and laughed as her door slammed shut. The old wagon bounced into and out of this gutter and swerved to the right in the street, pushing Devin on the back seat into me and me into Ray, who was pinned against the door. All of us laughing, even Patrick with his rapid-fire chortles, <laughs> sounding like a machine gun. A horn blared on our left. Caution, welcome, how dare you? Betsy bounced, but the casket seemed to hold. We're tipsy, Pat Patrick said. Seatbelts on, Isa sang. Patrick accelerated up the ramp to the five. When the sun moved to the windshield, warming my face, I knew we were heading east on the Ventura Freeway. What a beautiful dawn, I said, though I knew the sun was higher than that in the sky. You can't see it, Ray said. What can you see, Kevin? Isa teased. What can you see? I hadn't heard that phrase in a long time. Not since we'd lived alone together. I see a road that goes on to Florida. I see an old man who's happy to see us. You do not, Ray said. Sure I do. I even see his dream. Last night, he dreamed he was dying, but today he wants to go swim in the Gulf. For reals, Ray said. Sometimes I joke too much for Ray, so the two of us had a deal. Whenever he said for reals, I had to tell him the truth. You already know what I see, I said, laughing. Ray loved to imagine nothingness. Devin groaned, not again. <clears throat> I spoke slowly. I see absolutely nothing, or nothing, absolutely. I see neither darkness nor light. After a moment, Ray said, I always see black and little bits of color. I knew he was closing his eyes. You have to imagine, I said. Back before there was light, there was no darkness either. There was just the heavens and the earth. I never liked that first paragraph of Genesis, which says there was darkness before God summoned light. That's how I knew, even as a kid, that the Bible wasn't written by God. It was written by people with sight. I was born with vision, but lost it in an accident when I was five. After I was blinded, I still had visual memory as a child growing up, but by the time I arrived in Burbank, I could remember only a few broad sweeps, the flatness of a prairie, the expanse of a mountain dwarfed by sky. I could remember Grandpa's barn looming above me, the huge span of the open barn door, and I always associated with the, which I always associated with the rich smell of manure. Picture what you can from age five without the benefit of someone having snapped a photo? The few wisps I can generate are hazed in the fog of a dream, in murky shades, no colors or stark whites. After we merged onto I-10, I reached over the back seat and felt for my backpack, pulling out my new Braille note taker. The night before, when Devin had helped me test it, I talked to him about describing things on the trip for me, the visuals I thought I'd need to write the articles. But after I told him I wasn't bringing my laptop along, he got pissed at me and refused to help with anything. Forget it, he said. I'm not describing a thing for you. Show us your new toy, Isa said, twisting in the front seat. After I showed them the keys for typing and the strip along the bottom for the braille display, Ray and Devin ran their fingers along the display line. I haven't typed anything yet, I said. Ah, Devin said, no wonder I couldn't read it. You can't read Braille, Ray blurted. It has a voice reader too, I said. Let's try one. Tell me what the dawn looked like. That's over, Ray said. It's day already. 
I know, but tell me what it did look like. It was orange and yellow, like cotton candy. That's good, I said. I like that. I pressed the keys, and Ray and Devin felt the dots pop up along the display line. Tickles my fingers, Ray said. Here, I said, push this button. You'll hear what I typed. Wait, Devin said in a deep, authoritative tone. I think I've got it. He was still feeling the braille display, trying to convince Ray he could read it. Something about orange and yellow and cotton candy. Ray ignored him. He pushed the button, and the mechanical voice rushed through its monotone. That was too fast, Ray said. What did it say? I slowed the speed, and he pushed the button again, and the voice and tone. The pre-dawn smog glowed like cotton candy at the fair. That's not what I said, Ray complained. That's what writers do. Devin said, they change things around. He's conning you into describing stuff for that article he's going to write. What article? Patrick boomed. What the hell are you writing in that thing? We sat silent for a moment, startled. I knew these clashes would come, but already an hour from Burbank. It's not anything real. Isis said. He's just writing stories about himself, aren't you, Kevin? Like those articles he got Devin to write, Patrick sputtered, about the teachers? For an assignment at school, Devin had wanted to write about teacher-student relations. So I'd, let, so I'd let him borrow my digital recorder to record what teachers said in class. He got outrageous quotes, put-downs, and name-callings to get the kids to behave. Instead of just handing in a paper, he turned it into a newsletter for everybody to read. It caused an uproar and almost got him suspended. The teachers denied what they'd said, but then he produced the recordings. It made his newsletter a huge hit and made him want to be a reporter. You put me in that thing, Patrick said. I'll throw it in the river. I'm not kidding. I remembered my vow to myself not to get sucked into these squalls. I took a deep breath, spoke evenly. Like none of it mattered to me. It's a journal, I lied. I'm just writing about myself. That thing cost over $4,000, Isis said. You better not throw it in the river. He'll walk out. His parents will sue us. Look how you got him in trouble, Devin whispered across me to Ray. I did not. You did, Ray said. Maybe he should walk out, Patrick said. He can take care of himself. Of course he can, Isis said, but this, is a, this setup is good for everybody. I felt like a kid, the way they were talking about me as if I weren't there. Listen to me, Kevin, Patrick said loudly and slowly. I figured he was looking at me, glancing over his shoulder, or in the rearview mirror. I was sitting in the middle of the back seat. I took off my dark glasses and faced straight. So he could see where the sweeper wire had etched an S across my crumpled eyebrow, down through my eyelid, and into my cheek. I've never excelled at pressing myself on others, but over the past year, as Patrick had become more controlling, I'd found an approach that allowed me to hold my own. I would remind him one way or another that I'd already been cut to the core and survived. Parents or no parents, he said. Money or no money. If I find you're writing about me, that thing's going out the window. Or you're going out the window and I'll sell it. It's not about you, Devin said. Patrick swerved, 
Betsy onto the shoulder, throwing us all to the left, and then forward as our seatbelts um, into our seatbelts as he braked, and Betsy kicked rocks and duts into the dry heat of California's summer. The car slid to a stop, and everybody was breathing hard, and a cloud of dust enveloped us and whirled in through the windows, smelling like tires and sweat and asphalt, making me sneeze once, <clears throat> then again into my hand to keep my mucus off the $4,000 chronicler. Patrick twisted in his seat, the vinyl creaking, and spoke across me to Devon, cars whizzing by us on the freeway. How the hell would you know? He waited a full half minute to let that sink in, Devon fidgeting beside me, knowing better than to mutter a word, the dust settling as an acrid taste in my mouth. Ray sat as still a stone on my left. You think I'm an idiot? Doesn't know you and him sat up all last night figuring out how to download between that thing and his laptop? Blind man can't write on his own. My jaw clenched. My breathing stopped. I wanted to reach over the seat and grip him by the throat. But I suppressed that. I kept my vow. I remained quiet. I would not let him get to me. Not already. You listen good, Devin, Patrick said. Not everybody's on the up and up. Somebody with your record ought to know not to write stuff down. Don't give them anything to pin on you. With your history and the color of your skin, you better learn that and learn it well. You'll know soon enough how fast you can lose what you've got. What a paranoid SOB, I thought. I forced myself to breathe. And you listen, Kevin. He spoke so close I could hear his sou I could smell his sour face and the dank coffee of his gums. You'll have to get your own ride in the middle of the desert if I find you've got a hand in writing about me. He turned away, sitting squarely in his seat. And put your glasses on. It's not right to have to look at a man without an eyeball. I faced straight ahead at the rearview mirror, defying him to look. And I thought, I'm going to focus the articles on him, <laughs> just to spite him. Isa got us back on the highway with her effervescent and disabling goodwill. She reached back between the seats, tapping on the note taker with her finger, my cue to slip it into the backpack. Looking back, I don't mind so much that Patrick insulted me, but I'm still pissed at myself. My blood boils for not standing up for Devin right there. Maybe I could have brought things to a head a whole lot sooner. Thank you. Thank you, Tad. <laughs> Tad, oh, sorry. It's Thad? Thad. I think I said it right now. Thad. Thad. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and uh, our next author will be coming up. Uh, please uh, join in welcoming uh, Andrea Portis. Oh, a lot of extra credit out there. <laughs> I'll make it short and sweet for you, since this is really your night. Okay, I'm sorry that I think that this there's some bad language in here, but um, I didn't realize there's going to be extra credit. Okay, um, this is the beginning of the novel, and I'll just read this, and maybe if I feel like it, I'll read some more. Okay. You know why you keep losing? 
because guess what? You're a fucking loser. If I could grab you out your seat and make you fly past yourself and set you down in the middle of this red wooden shoebox, you'd be staring at my mama. You can see her now, ruddy-faced and getting a little too loud. Some kind of aging Bridget Bardot, 10 years later and 20 pounds past what might have been. And sitting there in the yellow tank, pink nails and blonde flip-up hair. And the shoes, the shoes are the crown in glory, the angel on top of the tinsel tree. Yellow plastic mules with flower etched on the strap just above her chipped pink toe berries. Who has that for a ringtone? <laughs> All right. Um, Okay, where was I? My mama's littlest toe looks like a shrimp. She's half in the bag and not caring about bra straps showing her big brass laughing or acting slutty. That's my dad there in the corner, hunched over the bar like some kind of beaten question mark. His stern fixed into a seven and seven. Seven for give up, seven for make do. Not much left over. There's no doubt in my mind that if he could dive headfast into that ice cube clinking whiskey pool dangling at the end of his fingertips, he would. If you threw Elvis and a scarecrow in a blender, top the whole thing off with Seagram 7 and pressed dice, you would make my dad. He's got tall black hair and shoulder blades that cut through his undershirt like clipped wings. He looks like a gray-skinned, skinny rat cowboy, and I would be lying if I didn't say that I am. Maybe sort of, kind of, keep it secret and love with him. We'll do just one more little thing here. Okay. Did you know I have a baby brother? Had one. It's because Tammy had a blue dress. Tammy had a blue dress that came down not far enough and my dad liked her in that blue dress and then next thing you know that blue dress started fitting tighter and tighter around her belly and next thing you know it looked like she swallowed a basketball and next thing you know my dad was skipping around talking about Lily you're gonna have a little baby brother now you're gonna have to help your mama now see and even though I was only seven and didn't know why Tammy swallowed a basketball or how that made a baby brother, you couldn't help but smile when you saw my dad floating through the door and through the neck, sashaying around Mama in her too tight blue dress. And she'd say, now come on now, you don't know it's going to be a boy, you just don't know that, just shush. And he'd say, yes I do. I do sure know it, like I know the sky is blue and I know the world is round and I know I married the most beautiful girl in the county, the state, the wide world, darling, the whole wide world. And this is the part where he'd saddle behind her and start rocking back and forth and making her blush and play swat him away. But she's swaying too, swaying there in that baby blue dress too. And they had a Sunday with everyone coming over and bringing gifts and cake and a little baby crib from Aunt Gina and Uncle Nipper, white with gold trim, like something you pulled out of a dollhouse and blew up life-size. And they were laughing and giggling and smiling 30 ways till sundown. And you would have been smiling too, because it was like all the good mornings and all the hi, how are yous and all the well, hello, sunshines in the county had taken lunch all at once and decided to march down the dirt road in the light just this once, just this one Sunday afternoon and arrange themselves in a circle around my basketball swallowing mama, sitting proud and pretty in that blue dress that started it all. And maybe God and the angels took note of that blue dress too, because when that baby came out the color of moonlight, we all knew something was wrong. And he was a boy all right, dad got that part right, but he wasn't the kind of boy you could take out front and throw a football to and 
four years or five or even six. No, sir, he'd just been born the color coming off the moon and sickly and sniffling and stiff. He was just born with a frown on his face. Like he got dropped off at the wrong planet or maybe the angels left out a step or maybe he didn't want nothing to do with it in the first place. And he had to sit in that incubator like some kind of other little baby chick while my dad and Aunt Jean and Uncle Nipper just waited and waited and whispered and whispered and spent more and more money they didn't have in the first place just to keep him down on this here planet. There was a doctor came in from Omaha and he took one look at that baby and said, we best be bringing him up there because that's where they got the best doctors and the best treatment money can buy. And my dad smiled and nodded and said, oh yes, doctor. And that baby stayed right there in that incubator for three days straight before deciding that maybe this wasn't the place for him after all. Maybe this wasn't the right planet or the right country or the right two broke family from somewhere out in the sticks anyways. So he just up and took to floating back up into the blue sky from whence he came. Back up to wherever planet you get to go to when you get born in the color of moonlight and your two broke daddy can't afford to send you up to Omaha where they got the best white coated smiling doctors that know what the fuck to do anyways. See, it's one thing to pretend you're James Dean and pump gas in the summer and make the girls blush before heading back to your double wide. It's one thing to pack mules in the fall and live in a log cabin and dip your head down before riding off in the sitting sun. But when not being able to scrape two dimes together makes it so your baby boy, born the color of the night sky, has to stay put in that glowing tin cup incubator instead of up with the experts in Omaha, well then, there's nothing glamorous about that now, is there? And she didn't have to say it, my mama, when the bones fell out of her body all at once and Aunt Jean and Uncle Nipper tried to hold her ragdoll body up by the elbows. She didn't have to say it. My mama, when it was like God himself had his heel in her back, holding her down in the linoleum. She didn't have to say it. My mama and my dad tried to shush her sobbing in the tile. When she pulled back, recoiled at just even the inkling, the beginning, the thought of his hand on her arm. She didn't have to say it. None of it. We all knew. We all knew. And Uncle Nipper knew to go to the house and get rid of that white crib with gold trim before Mama could set eyes on it. Please, Lord, just do it. And Aunt Gina knew to take that baby blue dress and just bury it, bury it deep in the back of her closet far, far away before Sunday visits and swallowing basketballs and boys born the color of coming off the moon. And I knew, this is when I first knew, this is when I learned how to throw myself over to the side of the room and watch my dumb little life like I was watching a movie. And you get the popcorn and we'll sit a spell and see what else goes by. And there goes Dad. He's been slumping around for three weeks straight with his head hanging off his shoulders. And there goes Mama. She can't eat but bring her this macaroni salad just in case. And there goes my most of my little kid playmates because no one wants a fucking thing to do with this ass anymore. That's for damn sure. And here comes Aunt Jean and Uncle Nipper with a few kind words and making sure I got at least some Malta meal and Chef Boyardee to tide me over. They'll be back tomorrow. And there goes my baby blue brother somewhere in the night sky above me and I wonder if I get to see him someday and tell him about the white crib he missed out on. And then I know it wasn't much, but we were real proud to have him and wanted him to stay. Just wanted him to stay a spell. And I would have played whatever silly little dumb game he had in mind, really. I was just happy to have him. My baby boy born the color of dusk. And you better just learn to throw yourself 20 feet across the room and let it play. Just let it play. You better just learn to put each day and night up onto that screen and just keep on watching. Here's what you'll see. You get to see the incredible shrinking man. You get to see a man six feet tall turn in on himself and slump forward into nothing and then gone. Poof. You get to see a great tale of revenge and lust with a beautiful blonde with flip-up hair. You get to see her gussied up each evening and put on lipstick and giggle loud and bat her eyelashes at strangers straying a little bit behind the alibi on a Saturday night. No better make that Sunday. Well, she might run off with the devil himself if he walked in, leaned his 
elbow on the jukebox and tipped his hat just so. You get to see all these attractions and then some. You get to see Elvis-style dreamboats and slutted up little girls and eyes swollen wild by the side of the road. You get to see naughty pink parts and come in attractions and wait, just wait, there's more. Keep watching. Let it play. Let it play. Wow, thank you both. That was awesome. Uh, now uh, I guess we'll do some Q&A. Um, I'll just get some chairs for you so you can just sit down. So um, just a moment. How did you come by the, that voice uh, for your main character? Um, the main character found me. I started out with these five characters um, on a road trip. And I knew that one of them was going to be blind. And I thought all of them would tell the, their own story. Uh, I started out with, I, I have some history of blindness with, within my own family. My grandfather went blind. Uh, I have a brother-in-law who's uh, in an accident at age five, lost all perception of light. So many of the physical attributes about Kevin come from my understanding of his experiences. Uh, so when I started, I started out trying to write from his point of view because I wanted to make sure I could get that right. And uh, once I started doing that, he took over the book. It was clear that his voice was unique, and um, it took several drafts for me to really understand his story. Because as I said, I didn't start out to write his story. Um, but once I started doing that, I knew I was on the right track. So he kind of came to me. He taught me how to write the book. Um, the character Luli is uh, played by Chloe in, in the movie. Um, that character just sort of started talking, that 13-year-old girl, and I honestly felt like I was just sort of listening and just kind of taking it down. And then when she was done talking, it was sort of like it was over. But basically, it was really, the whole, the whole book was sort of derived from this voice, basically. Actually, that's pretty similar. What else? Other questions? Great crowd here tonight. <laughs> Woohoo! I'm going to ask a question, please. <laughs> <laughs> Why a road trip? Um, I chose a road trip for a couple reasons. I'd written a novel before in the 90s, and it went in a lot of different directions. And I chose a road trip because I knew I had to get from point A to point B, and it helped me organize it. So that's on one level. I also wanted the concept of a road trip because, as I was saying, I think at the beginning, journeys change people. You get out of your routines. You, you get into a, When you get into a car or a, a situation where you're together in a, in a tight space, the things you're used to, uh, the way you treat each other, the things you ignore, things flare up and as a device it was it then enables a lot of things to happen in a very quick setting and characters change um for me it's sort of like my main character didn't want to just stay in nebraska i don't blame her <laughs> so. do, do you want to talk about recovery or how how that plays into the book? Um, well, I mentioned, yeah, early on that, that the two parents actually the and the the two parents meet Kevin, Kevin, who the blind narrator, in a recovery home. Um, I guess all I'll say about it here is that they they're all of us carry along things in our past and 
part of our responsibilities to each other, to people we care about, is sharing them in some ways and uh, and helping each other through them. And uh, so this, these characters are all, in a sense, trying to get over things in their past, one of which is addiction. Um, but as you find out going through the story, uh, there's other things that they're all kind of trying to hide and trying to, um, that are deeper. More questions, more questions? Okay, back there. Yeah? Part of the articulate with the question, but, and this is interesting for each of you, um, what either at the beginning or at the right part of the book would sort of drive what was most important? I mean, what sort of drove when you're writing and things can go different ways, like, well, this serves what I want to do with this story and this doesn't? Like, you said you wanted to have these five people, but did, did it come from just, you know, Basically, where does it come from? Is it, I want to write a book that does this, or or a book that seems to want to get written and it finds its own center? Um, for me, I felt like it was it was completely written by that character. Like like everything was just coming up for that, which is part of the reason why there are some serious plot problems. <laughs> but basically, it was you know the the story was kind of writing itself. And I find with it, with anything that I'm writing, if I, if I sit down and I say, this is exactly what's going to happen, um, if the characters are good, they will rebel and they will do what they want to. <laughs> and that's kind of when you know you're, you're into it. You're on onto something. And I can't, I can't tell you how many times I sat down and I, and I, and I, on the beginning of a chapter and I thought, this is, this is the chapter where this happens. And then the character would do something else. And I was like, oh, I can't believe you did that. That was great. And then, <laughs> and then it's great because those are the moments that a lot of times people come up and they're like, I can't believe that character did that. And I was like, neither did I. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I would second all that. I think all of it, and that's why I said Kevin really taught me what, it, it was a slow process, understanding kind of the timing of how you know things. If you're blind and you go, sight is a pretty aggressive thing. You go into a room, you, you have this assumption that you know what's going on because you see what's going on around you and you know kind of, you, you get some visual cues about, what, uh, about it. When you're blind and you go into a, a a new setting, it takes time. You have to figure out, kind of, you have to listen, you have to, it's a different pace. And so, learning that from, I had to, I had to sit and, and learn that from Kevin. Um, and I would agree that when I, when I had outlines or when I, I would start, I never really work with outlines, but I sketch out kind of where things are going. And then the characters, what I try to do is have interesting characters where they, everybody has something at stake, and then try to figure out they have to figure out how to get out of, get get from point A to point B, or figure out. And and the more I, if I'm listening to them, then then I know much more about where they're going and what to leave in and what to take out. One more question? Um, yeah, this may be a question for both of you. And certainly here, there's a, you know, your character has this sort of almost resolved hopeless, you know, res resolution to hopelessness, and yours not quite, but is there any kind of redemption at the end of the road? <laughs> well, you'll have to read the novel to see. <laughs> or see the movie coming out in the spring. Um, no, um, obviously, um, actually there were a couple of different, there was the ending that I went to the publisher with, to Fred, Ramey, our esteemed editor, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, he, when uh, when my 
literary agent. By the way, I just I would just like to say to all the extra credit folks out here, I literally, after I wrote the manuscript, went to this bookstore and found the writer's market and like wrote down the name of agents and went like I w I didn't know anybody. This is this is this bookstore actually was yeah it was all about me just going and, and looking up agents and then getting an agent and publisher so mm -hmm. I mean if anyone is an aspiring writer out there it's not completely hopeless um, but so basically um, there was an ending and it was fairly hopeless um, because that was sort of where I was coming from and after the publisher got my manuscript, Fred, he came up with a bunch of notes, which I angrily yelled at my agent about. <laughs> and then I realized he was right. And so then I went back, and, I, and you know, you're always the most angry about things that are actually right. And um, I went back, and there was a more hopeful ending. But the interesting thing is that then when this thing became a screenplay, when I wrote the screenplay, which shockingly, I was, I was allowed to write the screenplay for my novel. Um, I was kind of at a different place, so I actually wrote a different ending. So the first ending of the book was completely hopeless, and then the second ending of the book was sort of, well, you'll see. And then the third ending of the screenplay in the film is an entirely different thing altogether, and they basically represent hopefully transcendent uh, views of the world. My book went through seven different drafts, and I thought it was done each time, and the ending changed each time. The, um, about halfway through, the, it was a relatively dark story um, for the first several drafts, and the ending was uplifting from that. Um, but was still relatively dark, and I can say that uh, it, it's not so much that the ending has changed that much, but that the middle has, and some of the things that used to happen um, no longer. I talked to you about some, some in the class today at, at Van Nuys, but uh, some of the things that happened that were dark in the middle now have changed. And it gets back to the question of how do you know? I mean, it was really my agent, uh, publishers, uh, editors coming back to me with, with uh, you know, it basically wasn't selling um, the way it was the first time. And so I, I made it a different story. It's a better story. It's a more streamlined story. It's 100 pages shorter. So um, that, that just, you learn as you go. Um, for me, anyway, and it sounds like you got some feedback from your uh, Not agent. Pages worth. Yeah, no, this is. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, yeah. I want to go, ahead, Jim. One more. Um, so I just want to know, like, um, which uh, other writers were most influential to you, and and what influence they have, and why they're influential. Well, for my for this book specifically, you know, Faulkner has a book called As I Lay Dying that they're carrying a casket across, you know, quite a ways, and it's different. Um, but that also had several characters, strong characters in it, telling the story. That's again some of the narrative kind of my ideas about how it was going to be narrated came from that. Luckily, I listened to my characters, and the story is quite a bit different. But that was important. Also. They're on I-10. It's kind of an American river, so I, I think a, a lot about Huck Finn in, in it. And the two kids that are in it, 16-year-old, uh, 12-year-old, they're, you know, they're kind of street smart, but they're also kind of innocent to the world. And so they do some of the right things for the wrong reasons, like Huck does, and um, in, a, in a redemptive way. So that's another kind of... 
was, um, I just, uh, since you're asking about Mark Twain, I have to, I have to say that obviously is an influence on us both. The first is a little page here that's a Mark Twain quote at the beginning. It says, "There never was such a country for wandering liars." <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, Mark Twain is a huge influence, but. Um, Edith Warden, I think, is huge for me because she has this very pithy and extremely cruel way of summing up a character in, in a sentence or a paragraph. And then the other person who I always keep around and just literally just grab the book and read just to, just to have the, the pattern of just the right cadence um, is Joyce Carol Oates. I just think she's incredible. I think that that book Blonde that she wrote um, from the from the viewpoint of Marilyn Monroe is stunning. I mean, I just think she's absolutely incredible, and I just sort of keep her sprawled around, and I always I always look to her when I'm when I'm lost. I was just going to ask you about the film. How did how did I was gonna ask how did that happen? Or how? Yeah. Oh my God, it's the craziest thing in the world. Um, so the the novel came out in two thousand seven, and there was just like a weird period of nothing really going on, and it was very purgatorial. And it was like I wrote a novel. Who cares? And and then. Um, this Christian Taylor read the novel and he optioned it, and he went on his own. You didn't. No, I did. I just. I was just sitting there. I mean, I was just sitting there in Echo Park, you know, just being like, you know, with my weird friends, and then, um, and then basically, uh, Christian optioned the novel and. He kept trying to. He kept asking me to write the screenplay, and I kept telling him, "I'm a novelist. I don't write screenplays. I don't know anything about it. Leave me alone. Stop calling me." And um, and I mean, I I, I I know I'm being sort of jocular, but that really was how I felt about it. You know, I felt like you know I never taken a screenwriting class, class or anything like that. And so, so he 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 went out and interviewed you know different screenwriters, and some of them were quite good. And and finally, he came back to me, and he's just like please write the screenplay, and I was like, no, 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 and this literally happened for a period of about two months, so finally I just kind of exasperated, just said, okay, I'll write it, after, you know, many dinners and lunches, and uh, I think it was actually right over there, the place was a Cuban, there's this place there that keeps changing every two years, and at the time it was Cuban, um, and I think I had one too many mojitos when I said yes. Um, so, so then um, I wrote it, and then they strangely, this never happens, they had me interview the different potential directors. So I, I did, and I, I interviewed some damn good ones, but they, they kept focusing on the sadness of it, on the sort of like the bad, the storm and drong, you know, the, the bad things that happened to Lily. And there's a lot of humor in the book and there's a lot of humor to her, like sort of in a way like Paper Moon, like yeah, it's kind of dark, but there's also humor. And so Derek Martini, I, I talked to him on the phone and he was the first person that that understood sort of the humor of the book and wanted to do something that was kind of stylized, not just some gritty sort of Sean Penn movie, but wanted to do something cool and stylized and also was sort of obnoxious enough and strong-headed enough that I knew he could actually get the movie made. Um, so he went and did it and then he just kind of, people want to work with him because he has a really good reputation for working with actors. So he got Alec Baldwin and Blake Lively and Chloe Moretz and Eddie Redmayne and Juliette Lewis and the time that I knew that we were really in business is when Juliette Lewis wanted to play Tammy 
the mom. And I was like, oh, this is going to be good. So that was cool. Yeah. Thank you very much. Big warm round of applause for Thad O'Dean and Andrea Portis. Thank you very much for coming by. The books are available at the register. Please go and get it. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.